This is Legal Design Podcast. We are your hosts, Henna Tolvanen and Nina Toivonen. In this episode, we meet with Amanda Perry Casares, professor of law at Kent Law School, to discuss what design can do for legal research. As we know, the possibilities of design in the realm of law are almost endless, but can design also change the way we research law and practice academic legal analysis? And if it does, should we be worried that design takes over traditional law? Tune in to hear how to use Legos and Play-Doh as legal experimenting tools. Welcome to Legal Design Podcast, Amanda. It is a great honor to have you as our guest. What would you like to tell about yourself to our listeners? Well, hey, Nina, and hey, uh, Hannah. I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you so much. I'm a regular listener to the podcast, and I really appreciate this lively and diverse archive of legal design work that you're creating. Um, I'm a professor of law at Kent Law School, and that's in the southeast of England. And for most of my career, I've focused my research and my teaching on questions around law and economy. So, for example, how does law generate or destroy or coordinate and communicate about economic Uh, life, actions, values, and interests. And then how does economic life, actions, values, and interests then go back and shape law? But over the last decade, I've been thinking more and more about what design can do for law, including legal practice, legal activism, policymaking, research, and also teaching. So for example, last year, I published a book called Doing Sociolegal Research in Design Mode. And then uh, this summer, Emily Elbin and I have an edited collection coming out on uh, design in legal education. As you have just mentioned, Amanda, uh, one of your biggest research interests is to explore what design can do for law. And that's the topic me and Hannah are also very eager to learn more about in this podcast. So let's start with a big question. What can design do for law? That is a really big question, Nina. (laughs) (laughs) I think... um, Maybe we can think about it on a quite a general level, first of all. So if we think about the general kind of contribution um, that design can make for law, maybe we can think about it on two dimensions, maybe thinking about it in terms of prompting and then also facilitating. So making something, making people think about something and then also helping them to do it. And both of these dimensions we can think of in relation to communication, I think. Mm -hmm. So we can think... Uh, firstly, that design prompts us, it makes us take responsibility for the fact that law is always really about communication. So law is always about uh, expressing rights and responsibilities, expressing our hopes and fears, uh, communicating what's good and what's bad, or what's happening now and what we hope will happen in the future. And when we realize that, when, di- when design makes us realize that, then hopefully, ideally, Uh, we're prompted to take more time, to invest more time and more energy into thinking about exactly what we're trying to say with or about law and to whom we're trying to say it and to whom we ought to be trying to say it. So really taking more responsibility for what we're saying about law, thinking a bit more um, before we speak and then speaking well. So in turn, this ideally will prompt us to be more explicit about what values and what interests we are promoting or we're squashing and setting to the side and so on. So being more clear and more transparent. And then secondly, on the other hand, apart from prompting us to take responsibility for this idea of law being about communication, it also can prompt us to be more and and facilitate us to be more explicit 
uh, sorry, to be, uh, facilitate us to um, communicate more, sorry, uh, to ourselves and to others more effectively. So on the one hand, you're being prompted to think, oh, I'm communicating here. And then on the other hand, you're given the tools to be able to communicate more effectively. And then hopefully we can create either together or uh, individually ideas about law that are more robust, they're more relevant, and then we can speak about them in ways that are clearer for the widest possible audience. So I would, I would say that design can do for law, what design can do for law is to prompt and facilitate us to think about and take seriously communication. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. Um, in my own research, I have come up with this kind of a conclusion that if we understand law as a communication, as mm. a form of communication, then design can not only make it this communication more understandable and accessible, mm-hmm. but also acceptable. And I think what you were just, how you were just describing the, the ways design work can work for law um, so that we really are aware of what's happening and then that mm-hmm. we are aware of the needs and, and desires that people have and we can help them also, we can help the law to kind of communicate in a way that people really accept what what is being communicated to them yeah yeah yeah. and influence it as well turn it back against you and change it themselves yeah I think yeah so uh could we actually say that a good lawyer is a good communicator at the end of the day for sure yes uh I mean, one of their main jobs of a practicing lawyer is to be able to communicate to their clients. And when their client's telling you, I don't understand what this means, they need to be able to say it in 50 different ways. Exactly. Uh, whatever way, yeah, otherwise you're not providing a service, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Hey, Amanda, you talk about doing law by design mode. Could you please mm-hmm. explain to us and our listeners, what do you mean with design mode? And how did you get interested in doing law this way? Where did it all start for you? Yeah, oh, it's a funny, funny story. Everybody has their, their route, don't they? Um, I mean, I'll start Yeah, and we love got... all the becoming yeah. stories. <laughs> yeah. I'll add mine to the archive. <laughs> Perfect. Um, <laughs> so maybe if I start with that question of how did I get into it? So about 10 years ago, I started thinking a lot about how visual methods might help people who come from different disciplines. So for me, this was really about uh, economics and law. So how can uh, visual methods maybe help us to speak more directly to each other about the issues that we have in common, that we're both interested in? And uh, I started studying design part-time at the University of the Arts London. So I started off with short courses that I did a postgraduate certificate. And then eventually I did a master's degree all part-time while I was considering uh, continuing to be uh, uh, to, to teach law and research law at University of Kent. And I mean, that was such a process. I felt like such an idiot most of the time. I mean, everybody else in my class was really young and like technically skilled and they had all these connections to wider cultural life and they were really creatively oriented and I really was not. So I stuck out really badly, but I had so much fun. It was so interesting. And I had so many big ideas for me anyway, it felt like big transformative ideas. Um, And then the most important thing that I learned during all of that experience of just going to design school every week is that design is about so much more than just the outputs and just these visual methods and visual like graphics that I had in mind as being the most important thing. It's really also much more maybe about the mindsets and the processes and the strategies that the designers are using to to get to that output. So the sharing process, for example, that they go through as they go along, the testing and so on. 
So I was thinking it's also about working in design mode. And this is a term that I borrowed from Ezio Manzini, who's a social innovation designer. Um, and I find it really useful rather than terms like design thinking, mm -hmm. for example, I prefer this idea of working in design mode. So when I think about working in design mode, I'm primarily thinking about situations where you have a non-designer who is drawing on designerly ways. Um, so designerly ways is a term I've taken from Nigel Cross. And again, I prefer it to things like design thinking, for example, it's more open and more sophisticated, I think. So, so if a non-designer is, is, is uh, drawing on designerly ways and they're using it to enhance their ability to do the job in which they, sell, they themselves are an expert, that's for me working in design mode. So for me, it means I'm drawing on designerly ways to improve my work as an expert legal researcher. So I'm not being a designer. I mean, I have the qualifications in principle, but frankly, it's not my strength. Um, and, but I'm, I'm drawing on the ways that are characteristic of design. And I can do that um, either indirectly, for example, by reading a design book or listening to your podcast, for example, or I can do it um, directly by collaborating with an expert designer and help, uh, working with them to improve my own legal research. So that's what I mean by doing law or legal research, for example, in design mode. Um, so we, of course, did some research from you, Amanda, and we found out that in your research, you highlight three lawyerly concerns. This was really interesting, by the way. Uh, the need to communicate, the need to balance structure and freedom, and the need to be at once practical, critical, and imaginative. And when I read this, it kind of opened my eyes, like why some lawyers sometimes might feel that lawyering is stressful and even difficult and it might be hard to find balance. I mean, I feel like this all the time. <laughs> if we address these concerns with the traditional way of doing law, doing law almost sounds impossible. I mean, mission impossible. <laughs> so would you mind explaining how doing law with design mode can actually ease these concerns? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think ease is, the, is is correct rather than resolve in the sense that it's always going to be a nightmare, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I agree. So, and this is for the <laughs> practitioners and also for the academics, anybody who's working with law, right? Not to mention the clients. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And the students. Um, so maybe I'll begin by explaining a bit more precisely what I mean by designerly ways, which is this term that I, I borrowed from Nigel Cross. So, I mean, of course, you've heard so many views you have your own views and you hear all these views all the time in this podcast series about what's the core characteristic of designerly ways or, or design and what kind of terminology shall we use to refer to them so I have my preferred ones and I, I think about three particular bits of design I think about mindsets processes and strategies and each of these um, dimensions of design I think connects with uh, those three loyally concerns that you mentioned Hannah uh, and again here uh, I'll be drawing on the work of Ezio Manzini I'm an academic of course, I feel like I have to reference everybody all the time. I don't want to be told I'm taking somebody else's idea. But if we think then about these, these three dimensions, right, of mindsets, processes, and strategies. So starting firstly with the, maybe the designerly mindsets, right? And we can say that designers have a tendency to be simultaneously practical, critical, and imaginative. So what do I mean by this? If you're practical, then you're able to make things happen, right? If you're critical, you're able to identify what's wrong with the world and why. And if yeah. you're imaginative, uh, then you can, it's a, being imaginative, it's about um, conjuring things that are, that are not yet there 
or maybe not still there. They were once there in the past. So to be imaginative, to be able to see things that are not actually present right now. And for me, this connects to the lawyers need to be practical, critical and imaginative that you mentioned, Hannah. So uh, lawyers also need to be like this, to be able to make things happen, able to say what's wrong, able to imagine a contract, for example, or a relationship or a, a solution that's not already in the room. And then the second part would be the designerly processes. And for me, what's distinctive about designerly processes is that they emphasize experimentation. And when I think about experimentation, it's in two ways. So first of all, in this kind of structured, like scientific uh, way of having a, a hypothesis and then you test it, but also in the more creative and free kind of sense of following the leads that you that come that you come across and being provisional, just seeing where things go. So both of those ways. And I think design of the processes really emphasize uh, both forms of experimentation. And it's the fact that they do both that makes them so powerful. And then yeah. this connects to uh, this idea that you that you mentioned of the lawyers needing to be structured yet free. So they need to be able to think coherently, uh, conceptually about things and to connect to the existing legal world, right? They can't just be random, but they also need to be able to uh, let things go, you know, highlight only the thing that's important for this moment and so on. So that kind of freedom, that balance is really hard. So that's mindsets and processes. And then if we think about the third element, which is strategies, which is maybe the thing that I started out with, right, when I got all excited about design, which is about the fact that designerly strategies emphasize making things visible and tangible. So, uh, you know, making um, uh, digital or material models or um, uh, changing the design of a text, for example, the formatting typography, um, creating new artifacts, designing spaces, all of these things. And that's all about communication, of course. Uh, and this connects with the designers need to communicate with and about law. So those are the ways that I see as being characteristic of design. So if I come back to your question, finally, hello, one of my long academic <laughs> answers, uh, you, you asked me, how does working in design mode help to address these loyalty concerns? And I would say that it's this combined effect of these mindsets and processes and strategies that we can think of them as creating this kind of um, enabling ecosystem where lawyers of all kinds, um, you know, real experts and then also lay people can together or by themselves make and communicate sense of legal ideas. Um, so it's really about creating that structured yet free enabling ecosystem uh, that, that I think that, uh, that design can, can help um, lawyers in their concerns, yeah. This is Brilliant, actually. I mean, imagine a world if all the lawyers would work in a design mode. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hmm. Let's discuss about doing legal research uh, on design mode. So in your book, Doing Social Legal Research in Design Mode, you, Amanda, explore and explain what design can do for social legal research. And as we're using this concept or uh, field of social legal here mm. uh, maybe it's 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 good to explain what it means so in, in to put it simply social legal refers to the understanding of law as a social phenomena and it views law as a part of society and how law shapes shapes human behavior and experiences what it is to be human in a given social context and 
And when law is viewed from this perspective, it becomes obvious, at least to me, that legal design can have a lot to offer to improve these behaviors and experiences. And um, legal design uh, and social legal approaches to law, it also seems that they share the same idea that it's useful to observe and develop law also outside of the law the system of law using the knowledge mm. and viewpoints of other sciences. So there are many kind of synergies in these kind of two, two ways mm-hmm. to approach law, I think. So, but however, as we know, <laughs> uh, this makes a big contrast to the more traditional legal research, we can maybe call it as legal dogmatics, mm-hmm. label it, and, and legal thinking, which, which struggles with the idea of having multiple perspectives to legal issues, not to mention using other information sources and legally binding sources to solve legal problems. Yeah. And this is also, again, a very big question, maybe. But <laughs> do you think design can ease law and legal research with these struggles more generally so that law or the legal science could become more like a real science mm-hmm. that operates with empirical data and experimenting and perhaps also more interdisciplinarily. Yeah, thanks, Nina. I mean, that's really interesting. And I, I think, um, again, I like the fact that you've used this word ease. As yeah, <laughs> we can't solve again, everything. All... No, no, even though uh, we yeah, like exactly. it. <laughs> yeah, we're more into like soothing mode, right? And making things a bit easier, <laughs> a bit more. So we're, we're realistic in our ambitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I'm really convinced that design can help uh, legal research to become more genuinely interdisciplinary. So not just saying, oh, I'm interested in economic issues, but I do it through law, but really using, speaking with economists and using economic concepts, for example. Um, So yeah, I think it it can really make um, legal research more genuinely interdisciplinary and more empirically grounded. So really connecting to the actual lived experiences of human beings and therefore um, more robust, more truthful, Mm -hmm. and then also more relevant to, to people, more useful, you know? So, I mean, for example, I, Earlier, I suggested that um, what design can do for law at a general level is to prompt and facilitate communication, right? So if we just focus on the importance of communication for interdisciplinarity and for being empirically grounded, um, then we can think, you know, the communication about law, it can be between different kinds of disciplines. So uh, for me, that was law and economics. Um, But we can think of designerly ways as as helping researchers from different disciplines to use each other's conceptual frameworks, but also to challenge them. So to say, this doesn't make sense. You're speaking about the economy in a completely crazy way. It doesn't fit at all. So they can use them, other people's, other disciplines, conceptual frameworks, and also challenge them. And the same goes for uh, empirical evidence, what data you're collecting. I can use your data and I can challenge your data if I'm able to communicate with you clearly. And also importantly, the thing that we discuss so much less is the normative agenda. You know, what Uh are the values that that you're trying to promote within your discipline quietly? I mean, I always speak about economists here. They have so many hidden norms i mean Mm -hmm. we lawyers do as well or we say we don't do we don't do values we just do pure law as if it's something separate no obviously so yeah so so you can allow different disciplines to use and to challenge each other's normative agendas as well i I think if you improve communication and then uh, on the other hand you can have communication between academics and the wider world so there's a big impact push 
in many jurisdictions for researchers to be, have more attention to the impact of their work, to make sure that people are actually able to use it, that it has some kind of meaning. And of course, you can take this too far. It's important to have research that's just interesting for its own right. But there's, it's important also to pay attention to whether people can use your work. So let's imagine that the communication in question is about academics and the wider world is between those two. So we can say maybe designerly ways can help the people that I'm researching, if I'm going to go and do interviews on people and go and poke around in their lives and make mm -hmm. comments about them, maybe it's going to help them to use my work, but also to challenge my conceptual framework, my normative agenda and my empirical evidence. Maybe they can tell me I'm wrong or irrelevant or they can't understand what on earth I'm saying. These are all important things. Mm -hmm. and, and designerly ways, I think, can really make that more possible because it levels the playing field in terms of communication. And, and of course, it's important to note that all of these types of communication can occur across different languages. I mean, I'm so lucky uh, or, or uh, cursed to be born in an English language uh, <laughs> jurisdiction. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's gloss over that. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm very lucky. But, you know, we, these conversations need to be having, had across multiple languages and, of course, across different physical abilities, mental abilities and so on. And good design can help communication there as well. So, yeah, that's my long answer to your question. <laughs> Thank you. Hmm. I was once um, asked, so if we let's uh, start to apply design in law, doesn't mm -hmm. it does is there a risk that law becomes just a form of design then that there is no law anymore? <laughs> I guess this was design. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's such an interesting point, and it really points to the fact that we have, and, and this is quite a controversial thing that I'm going to say, but it's something I believe, um, that we really lack uh, firm, shared, general understandings about what law is for mm -hmm. in and of itself, what makes um, law good, what are the fundamental elements of a well law, law that is um, healthy, a healthy legal system, um, so to the extent that we don't really have shared ideas about what is a good law, we are very vulnerable to law being taken over by other disciplines to become just about design, to become just about economics. Um, but in order to counter that, we need to think a lot more about what our law is for. And in some ways, design can help us to do that because design should be, uh, sorry, because law should be about um, working for the population, working for the, the values and interests of, of the population that it serves. Um, it should express the values and interests of the human beings within its jurisdiction. It should coordinate between those values and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we could use design to help us understand what values and interests we're interested in, then our law can better support those values. But uh, yeah, we are, it's a very good point that law is an instrumental discipline. And as a consequence, it's it's used for other people's interests. It's used for other people's agendas. And we need to think more about what is important, what is at the heart of law um, and take responsibility for that, for, 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 for working for good law, for, yeah. for well law. Yeah. Yeah. I like your answer much better than, yeah, than exactly. what I answered to this question. I was saying like, yeah, but the chair is still a chair, even it's been designed. <laughs> <laughs> but this is true. That's true, true as well. Too, but, but there's something maybe... cherry in the chair. Yeah. If you think about it as a chair, the chair has to be able to sustain a person sitting on it. Yeah. Or a dog or yeah. a cat. You know? Yeah. That's a cherry thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is the law y thing? You know? Yeah. 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 yeah maybe we're making the same point. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
yeah, let's go back to your book. In the book, you mentioned some example cases where you have tested or used design methods when teaching law or conducting research projects at Kent Law School. Mm. Could you share with us some of your favorite ones mm. from the book? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the last chapter of the book, actually, I wrote it to be like, it's not a conclusion. It's like a jumping off point. It's mm -hmm. and, uh, so I wanted it to be full of ideas of what you can do now, you know, as a legal researcher, socio-legal researcher who doesn't know anything about design, you could just go and do these things and then you'll understand, learn by doing what it might be to do kind of research in design mode. So there's lots of um, legal design research briefs in the end with all these detailed instructions. And many of those I developed as part of the um, research methods in law course that I teach um, to first year PhD students at Kent. So it's compulsory for them. So I have a ready-made lab really to, to work these things out and some uh, very patient and enthusiastic and generous students. Um, so my favorite of those ones is this like collection of three model making or prototyping activities and I like them because you can do them individually uh, as in one by one um, but it's it's really more satisfying and impactful if you do the, all three of them all in one day with the same group of people especially so again with all of these things you can do it by yourself or with a group uh, it's usually better to do it as a group and just discuss with each other um, what you find along the way so the first the first uh, um, task is you build a lego model to explain your research project so it's really Uh, an explanatory process. So you're going to use the Lego to show what are the key components of your project, the key concepts, the key actors, the key relationships, and how do they all those components fit together. And then as a second stage, where do you see yourself in relation to the project? So like, are you at the beginning? Are you at the end? Do you feel really distant from it? Do you feel like right in the middle of it? And do you feel like connected to the concepts or to the people and that kind of thing? And then The second model-making exercise would be you'd find an artifact in a formal collection. So like I've done this a few times in the British Museum. Mm. And you go to the collection and you think, okay, you look through the catalog and you find a word, you maybe chase a particular word or you walk through the museum and you find an object that represents for you, in your mind, some aspect of your research. So maybe a relationship or a particular time period, something like that. And then you do a detailed analysis of the artifact. So like you might start very close to the object, you look at the material character, and then you think of its historical significance, how was it used in that day and so on. And then you can go wider and wider to become a bit more speculative. And you use that artifact and your discussion of that artifact to generate new insights into your research topic. And it's amazing what people find when they do this, mm. um, I must say. Um, And then the, the third part, the third model making bit is that you make an object and it doesn't have to be beautiful, which is lucky because things that I make are not very sophisticated, but you could use like uh, clay. So, you know, that um, FIMO air dry, I don't know, say FIMO, FIMO, but the air dry clay or you can mm -hmm. put it in the oven. So that one, you know, children's clay, really. And you, yeah. you make an object and it can be like maybe a representation of the object you found in the museum or maybe some completely out of the blue thing that you just made up. But it's going to capture, again, some dimension of your research that you really want to be able to keep hold of. So like you want to be able to have it in your pocket or on your desk. And it's going to represent something that is difficult to keep hold of. So, for example, like a person, an actor in your research who you, 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 you keep forgetting them and you want to remember this person and their perception is important to include in my research or some idea that you didn't quite pin down yet. Like you can't write it out properly, but you, you can capture a little bit of it, the essence of it in this little object. And 
what I like about these three um, exercises is like you can you can uh, do them individually, as I say, or you can do them together. But each time while you're doing it, you can discuss with the other participants if you're doing it in a group, what you're doing, why are you doing it? Why did you put this piece of Lego there? What is it about this object that attracted you? And you learn something about yourself and about your research and about other people's research in, in that way. And then at the end of this day, if you do it like that, you can have like a pop-up museum of uh, all the models in relation to each other. So you could like, uh, I've made a mat in the past, like designed a display mat, you know, we took it to the British Museum and we were making all of our things and we put them out there all together in relation to each other, collected all the projects in the way we thought and people really liked it. The tourists were wondering what on earth was going on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that sounds yeah, so, so cool. <laughs> it's great fun, I must say, <laughs> and very easy. Yeah. And honestly, if you go around any department, any institution and say, does anybody have any Lego they don't want? My God, you'll be flooded with it. You know, people saying, thank goodness, please take this from me. It's taking up my space. So it doesn't require any money. <laughs> wow. Very interesting. Definitely a new way to look at doing research. Yeah. How are people facing these new methods? Are they thrilled or are they afraid to try something new? Is it easy to get them on board? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the time when I've done this, I've done an open call. I've said, come and play, you know, come and do this. Thing. And then, of course, you yeah. get the people who want to come and play. But as I said, I also have this uh, um, captive audience or captive uh, test center in my the research methods module uh, that I teach at Kent. So those students have to do these things. I ask them to do these things and they have to do it and then reflect on it. And that's where I get the most interesting insights, because often you'll find people saying this is completely ridiculous. Why am I doing this? But then almost always <laughs> they come up with something that they've learned from it. Now, of course, part of yeah. it would just be being polite to me, <laughs> uh, but also um, it's, it's, I really enjoy it when people say this is going to be absurd. It's got nothing to do with my highly theoretical, incredibly important conceptual work. And you're making me play with clay or, you know, muck about with Lego. <laughs> and then they say, oh, actually, I don't know why I'd put this thing there. And now I'm going to do it in a completely different order. And, you know, mm. they learn something very concrete, exactly. very specific. Mm. Yeah, and that's really a great way to make theories kind of work better in practice because you have to make it tangible. <laughs> yes, and also to accept critique, you know, because yeah. if you take the idea out of your head and you put it into a model in the room, then people can poke at the model. They don't have to point at you and say, why did you say this stupid thing? They can mm. say, why are you putting this over here or over there? You say, oh, I don't know. Why is that there? Let's try moving it over here. And suddenly it becomes a bit less fractious a bit less tense I think you know that is clever yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow I will bring all the Legos that we have laying in our house to the university yes. if I ever yes. get to teach students <laughs> <laughs> great hey let's talk a little more about putting research into practice because mm. that isn't always easy um legal design is gaining more grounds in in academia and I think it is safe to say that legal design is an academic discipline. Mm -hmm. There are so many interesting studies for example in contract design but um, how to bring them actually into practice? Do you have mm -hmm. some thoughts Amanda on how to make research more appealing to a wider audience? Yeah, I mean, this is such an important question, isn't it? For so many um, fields, you know, legal design and every other, really. Exactly, I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's there's so much extent to which people, you know, there's always this this kind of 
is it a myth? Is it reality that people think, oh, I have to say things in a clever and complex way in order to be taken seriously? You know, and research yeah. needs to be something fancy. Uh, yeah. Um, so I think there's three things here, especially thinking about legal design as quite a new field. And also thinking about design research as being quite like a, a, a new field as well, really. So um, it's quite you know thin, not to be disrespectful, but you know to be realistic, there's there's not a, a vast quantity of stuff out there. So you know most people aren't going to trip over it just by chance, right? Mm. So I think the first thing to do to really build um, interest in legal design and to to promote the you know potential impact of of legal design is to keep developing these kind of niche forums like like this uh, podcast series. Uh, and also I saw today that um, there's a new legal design e-journal. So from the Social Science Research Network, where you can re recirculate um, articles that you've published elsewhere, you can uh, put them through this particular um, system and they'll get turned into a digest and you can subscribe to it and find out every time somebody does something on legal design, it will, you know, you'll find oh, out. Oh, that's nice. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really good. So uh, New Law Lab have, um, have just done that. Um, so... This kind of thing where you kind of consolidate and bring it together, but not necessarily having to have a whole new, you know, uh, a whole new venue, but using the existing ones, you know, being agile, right? Um, and then this kind of, these kind of activities give people a, a free, right? So that's important, which is most academic research is expensive to gain access to. So it give, you give people uh, uh, free access to um, an immediate sense of what's happening right now in the field so people can uh, react to it. And then the, the second thing I think is to engage more systematically with all the existing infrastructure that's out there in terms of um, international academic legal associations. So like the Design Research Society meeting in Bilbao this year, they have a theme from again, New Law Lab at Northeastern, uh, what legal design could be. So uh, that's important to put legal design in design, existing design um, meetings. But then it would also be good to see a legal design theme at one of the annual meetings of one of the general law associations like the Social Legal Studies Association in the UK or the Law and Society Association in the US. Um, so to, to just really make use of what's already there. But then I think like also the third thing that we need to do is to is to be really patient because good yeah. quality research, <laughs> you know, good quality research and high quality research impact. So like something that's deep, it, it takes time. And, yeah, and exactly. we're only talking a decade here, right? You think about like how long has law been around all the other disciplines? I mean, it's, this is, <laughs> it's a baby zone. It's beautiful and cute and nice and will have great impact, but it's also quite young. So mm -hmm. we can be yeah. <laughs> young and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, Amanda, for joining us. I think we've enjoyed this, this discussion a lot, and I'm pretty sure that our audience will love this. Mm -hmm. It brings so many fresh ideas. It's brilliant. But now it is time for our final question. And legal design is, of course, an amazing development, and it really can make a difference in the world of law. But um, I'm pretty sure that it's not going to resolve all our problems. But we also <laughs> only ease, at least, as mentioned. Yeah, only <laughs> exactly, as we just learned. But for some reason, we often get legal design with bias. But how yeah. important it is to approach also legal design critically? 
I mean, you have to approach anything that you love critically, right? If you want it to be the best it can be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if we love legal design, we must be critical of legal design. And uh, I mean, earlier I I talked about the fact that lawyers and designers, um, they are and they seek to be critical. So I said, you know, practical, critical, imaginative, right? So that's an aspiration. But um, that's in quite the, the narrow sense of being able to see what's wrong with the yeah. scholarly world and with the wider world, right? And, and how you can make it right. So that's quite a narrow interpretation of critical. And, you know, this has a lot of meaning in the UK, especially where we, several law schools, including my own, describe ourselves as critical in this particular way. We, we look at the world and we say what's wrong with it and we say how it can be better. But there's also these other dimensions of the word critical, and they have much more to do with responsibility and um, taking responsibility for what we do. So the first one I would think about is that we need to be critical, not only about the world, but also of ourselves. So we need to seek out and we need to respond to and take seriously critique from others who know things that we do not know. That sounds really obvious, but it's incredibly difficult to Mm -hmm. keep remembering that. It takes time. You have to get into other people's mindsets and other people's language. Um, that we, and we also need to be especially sure to make space for uh, critique from people who we may not normally have in mind due to our own biases. So we all have narrow views of the world. Uh, we can try as hard as we like to be more open, but we will never be able to see things from multiple pers- you know, as multiple perspectives as it's necessary because of geography or age, gender, race, physical ability, everything. So it's just really important to assume that you don't know most things <laughs> and then yeah. to listen to what, uh, <laughs> what other people are telling you. Um, yeah, and then there's also um, another aspect of critical, which is about um, whether or, or how, in what ways what we're doing is critical in this other sense of being like crucial or essential, something that you mustn't lose because it's, it's critical that we have this thing, you know? And, and on that note, we, we need to ask ourselves, like, are we adding something that's genuinely new? Like maybe, maybe I've said some new things in, in recent years, maybe not. Uh, or are we simply like just reframing or rebranding something that's already there? And then um, the other part of that is to say, okay, maybe it's new. Maybe I said some new things, but like, is it meaningful? Like, does it add something valuable to somebody else, or is it just hot air? And and we need a lot less hot air. And I think with any kind of new, exciting things, so we can think. You know, we were discussing that legal design is quite new, actually, in the global sense. Um, it's 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 really important, even more important, to be focusing on whether it's meaningful. Like, it's new, yes. And then what's it bringing? What meaning is it bringing um, to things? How is it making the world? Uh, how, how is it contributing something meaningful to the world? So that's what I would mean. I, I think it's very important to be critical um, of legal design, in legal design, through legal design um, and, and of ourselves as we do legal design. Yeah. Mm, wise words. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. It <laughs> has really been a, a joy to have you join us. Thank you so much. It was really eye-opening for me. Thank you. Thank you for your excellent questions. Really, really interesting for me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Legal Design Podcast. Get to know us at legaldesignpodcast.com 